calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You're listening to Inherited Danger, book two of the Dawning of Power trilogy, a podcast novel written and read by Brian Rathbone. For more information, maps, and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening. Chapter 4 Before we can truly understand our role in this life, we must first admit our reliance on every other life form. Hitaku the Druid Benjin stood before the assemblage and spoke as if they did not exist. Wendell and I spent most of our childhoods trying to outdo each other, and when old man Derzinger started filling Wendell's ears with talk of the Greatland, there was no stopping him. Somehow, I knew his grand adventure would be dangerous and possibly fatal, but Wendell failed to see it. He was convinced we would take the Greatland by storm, just the two of us. We would save the world, he said in a rhythmic cadence. He seemed to have left the present, and the past poured from him. I didn't even know what we were supposed to be searching for. Clues about Istra was all we had to go on, but Wendell seemed to think it was enough. Old man Derzinger sent us through the Chinapa Valley to the Argas Desert. We skirted the desert to the south and eventually arrived on the beaches, battered by storms all the way, and we feared we were too late. We saw no sign of the promised ship, and for nine days we waited. When the ship finally arrived, though, Wendell became more determined than ever. When we met Kenward, I knew things were going to get worse. He paused as Kenward involuntarily choked, temporarily breaking the spell, and Benjamin seemed to realize once again to whom he was speaking. Katrin's sudden desire to smack Kenward must have shone on her face, for he nodded a silent apology to her. Kenward was on his solo voyage with his new ship, the Kraken's Claw, Benjen continued. He and Wendell seemed to fuel each other's fires. Kenward's mother, Nora, had given orders for us to be delivered to the Falcon Isles. Wendell challenged Kenward to disobey those orders, and sailed directly for the Greatland. Kenward knew it was too long a voyage for a ship as small as the Claw, 
but Wendell fed his ego, and it was more than he could resist, he said. Kenward rolled his eyes, but when he noticed Katrin's glare, he assumed a neutral posture and tried to look innocent. I'm grateful that the crew proved themselves to be some of the craftiest and most resourceful sailors ever to set sail. It took every bit of their ingenuity and tenacity to survive the suicidal voyage. We almost starved and were nearly caught several times by patrolling military vessels, but Kenward and his crew found a way to escape each time, Benjamin continued, and Kenward puffed out his chest. His seemingly endless luck drove Wendell to believe they were both invincible. When we reached the Greatland, Wendell walked in like he owned the place, and may the gods bless him, he pulled it off. He acted as if he truly belonged there and no one questioned him. Somehow, he got us passage with a caravan, and even got them to let us ride in one of the new carriages they were delivering. Wendell enjoyed the ride, and played his part as if it were true. In contrast, I constantly feared someone would call his bluff, and then they would hang us both. We made the entire trip to Mundelboro, without anyone giving us more than a second glance, but as the caravan waited in the tariff line, the trader rushed us out of the carriage. His customer had ridden out to meet him. He paused a moment and seemed to be reliving his memory. She sat atop her horse in leathers and a fur-lined coat, and her brow furrowed as Wendell and I climbed from the carriage that bore her family's crest on the doors, a pair of intertwined roses. Her eyes afire, she dismounted, moving like an angry cat, she demanded to know who we were and how dare we ride in her commission. The situation got worse when Wendell told her to mind her own affairs and added that her father would understand the needs of men. It was a stupid thing to say, and I'm still not sure exactly what he meant, but it enraged her. She grabbed him by the arm, swung him around, and demanded he explain himself and pay for a thorough cleaning of her carriage. He refused, of course and brushed his hands over the seat cushions, as if that would satisfy her. Or perhaps he did it because he knew it would infuriate her. I could never figure those two out. They argued until after dark. I finally told them I was leaving and would rejoin their argument in the morning. Benjamin looked at Katrin, a silent apology in his eyes, and she knew before he continued that he would not coat the truth with honey. When Wendell said he had no more to say to Miss Self-Important and would join me, she said her name was Elsa May Mangst, and he would do well to remember it. They started arguing all over again, and somehow he argued her into having dinner with him. They voiced their conflicting opinions over cold food for hours. As I said, I never understood those two. I tried to convince Wendell to move on quickly and escape the unwanted attention that his relationship with Elsa could only bring, but he insisted she was the key to our quest. She was highborn. She would have access to important information and would have contacts at her disposal. It didn't help matters that the Jean were waging war along the coasts, and the Mundelburns were building up forces along the border with Lankland. There had already been skirmishes and the long-standing feud between the Mangst and Kite families had begun anew. No one could remember what caused the original feud, but times of peace never lasted long. 
On the day of her majority, Elsa claimed independence from her parents' rule and took command of a border patrol unit. The event caused quite a stir, but no one attempted to stop her. She had been well-trained, and she assembled a force of elite fighters and rangers, those who could be as stealthy as they were lethal. Somehow, Wendell convinced Elsa we should be a part of her force, and I think she agreed only for the opportunity to humiliate him. We trained alongside the veterans and did our best not to look like rank amateurs. Wendell succeeded more so than I, but I completed all the exercises. When we set out on our first official mission, we left through a fanfare that lined the streets of Mundelboro's capital city, Ravenhold. I'd thought Kenward and Wendell were the worst possible combination, but that was before I saw Wendell and Elsa fight together. They were brazen and reckless, taking careless risks that were just not necessary. Several good men were wounded in the first sortie, and the veterans chastised Wendell and Elsa for their foolish behavior. The journey back to Ravenhold, the ancestral home of Elsa's family, was downcast and subdued. Word of the events spread fast. Elsa's mother promptly bribed each member of Elsa's patrol to seek reassignment. Most accepted eagerly, not wishing to die while Elsa proved something to herself. Wendell refused the bribe, and he urged me to do the same. In the end, though, Elsa abandoned her service in the patrols. She said she wanted to be an independent ranger, a one-woman elite force. What Wendell did then was one of the stupidest things I've ever witnessed. He told her everything, our entire story. I thought she'd have us hung, but she surprised me and was lured by the danger and excitement especially the possibility of reclaiming ancient knowledge. It wasn't long before the three of us began our journey across the wilderness in search of clues. We wandered aimlessly from hamlet to farmstead, listening to legends and fireside tales, but we found nothing that struck us as significant. They were pleasant days for the most part, with the exception of the incessant bickering between Elsa and Wendell. I often wondered why two people who irritated each other so much would choose to spend their time together. Elsa was kind to me, and never let me feel left out of the conversation, but Wendell seemed to forget I existed. Elsa was beautiful and strong and high-spirited. She was exciting, and I fell in love with her. It wasn't something I did intentionally. I even made myself find things I disliked about her, but even her flaws endeared her to me. I was hopelessly smitten, and neither of them saw it. They were blind, and so was I, he said. Katrin was lost in his story. She felt as if she were there with them, living through Benjen's memory. One night, we sat around our fire discussing the Jean and their recent conquests and Elsa told us of their strict religious beliefs. As they conquered new lands, they quoted spiritual doctrine and forced the people to join their faith or face death. Wendell realized the Jean scriptures could hold a treasure trove of clues, if only we could get a copy. Elsa said the common folk didn't have complete copies. They had to write them down or commit them to memory as sermons were read. 
The only places that had pristine copies were churches and the master's homes. Not satisfied with getting just any copy, Wendell and Elsa decided to steal one from the cathedral at Adderhold. They were convinced such a prestigious site would have a very old copy of the scriptures, and, hopefully, one that had not been transcribed too many times. When we reached the hills along the shores of the Inland Sea, Elsa asked me to stay at camp and guard the horses. But I knew they really just didn't want me along. I could not deny her request and watched helplessly as they walked away, intent on sneaking into the Jean's center of power to steal holy documents. I didn't think we'd escape the Greatland once such a high crime had been committed, knowing the Jean would be relentless in their search. Benjen stopped speaking long enough to drink from his mug. People shifted in their seats, but they waited quietly for him to continue his tale. He took a deep breath and began speaking again in a soft voice that some strained to hear. The alarm bells woke me the next morning. I hid in the hills and waited. After seven days, I nearly left. Patrols had been scouring the countryside, and I had to keep moving to avoid them. But still I waited, hoping they would return. One afternoon, as I was hunting in the hills, I saw a man stumbling through the narrow valley. It was Nat. Not the most pleasant company for either of us, I suppose, but we waited two more days together. When Wendell and Elsa finally returned, they were all smiles. They were triumphant and ready for a pleasant journey home. But when we approached the Lanklin border, we found it heavily guarded and patrolled. Wendell's plan was to simply act like we belonged there and march straight through the border check. Just act like you belong here, and we'll be fine, he said. The guards look tired and bored, so we'll just blend in with the other merchants. I thought it was a terrible plan, but Elsa sided with Wendell again. Nat and I either had to play along or stay behind. Everyone else played their parts well, and I did my best to hide my fear but my nervous sweating nearly gave us away. Wendell convinced the border guards I was sick, and they rushed us along so they would not catch my illness. When we made camp within a secluded patch of trees, Wendell and Elsa celebrated their victory. He swept her up in his arms, and then he kissed her, he said, looking as if every muscle in his body were contracting. His hands were balled into fists, and his back was hunched. Katrin hated to see him relive such a painful memory, but she supposed it was necessary. I was young and foolish and in love, he said with tears in his eyes. I confronted them and told them I was in love with Elsa. She said nothing. She just stood there with her hand over her mouth in shock. Wendell laughed. It was the final insult. I could take no more. Something inside me snapped and I attacked him. I took out all my fears and frustrations on him. I beat him mercilessly. He landed blows of his own, but neither of us would give up the fight. Nat and Elsa separated us, and we scorned them for it. When it was all over, Elsa ran to Wendell's side. I was left with the sympathies 
of Nat. I ran as far and as fast as I could and never looked back. Eventually, I found my way to Kenward and negotiated passage back to the Godfist. We sailed to the Falcon Isles where I was to board a smaller ship. Elsa and Wendell arrived in the Falcon Isles not long after, having posed as traitors and traveled in luxury on a larger ship. We traveled back to the Godfist on the same, smaller ship. I avoided them. Elsa sought me out once, but I pushed her away. She was hurt, I know, but no more than I was. I avoided them still when we returned to the Godfist, and the news of Elsa's pregnancy burned my soul. It was not until her death that I chose to go see their child, and I've not been the same since. I hid in the trees and watched Katrin and Chase play in the mud. Katrin was a tiny and perfect little replica of Elsa. She stole my heart away. He glanced at Katrin with pain in his eyes. I made amends with Wendell, and over time we became friends again. I stayed close to him and kept my eyes on Katrin and Chase. We knew Elsa and Willa's deaths weren't natural despite the lack of any proof, and we were constantly alert for danger, he said, his voice hoarse. Katrin was captivated by his tale, but felt a terrible weight of responsibility. She could not help the pain brought by her resemblance to her mother, but she felt guilty nonetheless. There, I've told you the story, and revealed many of my secrets. I've no more to say this night, Benjen said as he stood to leave. Kenward did not try to deter him. Instead, he dismissed everyone, saying they would meet again after they had sufficient time to reflect. Katrin was grateful for the respite, unsure she could take any more revelations this day. She retired to the quarters of a man who was on duty and fell asleep almost as soon as she hit the hammock. In the dim lamplight, Strom looked much older, and when he spoke, there was something new in his voice, something Osborne couldn't yet define. Listen, Osbo, I gotta know what you think. How are we ever gonna be able to help Cat? We're powerless in all this. I'm no soldier or guard. I know how to stable horses. And you're a pig farmer. Without pig farmers, there'd be no bacon. Yeah, Osbo, I know, I do, Strom said under Osborne's glare. Lighten up. I don't know how to help Cat either, Osborne said, feeling small and insignificant. I don't know how to help any of us. I'm scared. Don't worry, Osbo. Just stay with me. We'll figure out a way to have some fun before all this is done. Now you're really scaring me, Osborne said, his grin finally returning. Your idea of fun usually ends up getting someone hurt. You only get hurt if you don't do it right, Strom said with a wink, and Osborne sighed. I guess as far as helping Cat goes, we just do the best we can. Agreed? Agreed. We better get some sleep. I have a feeling we're going to need it.
In the morning, they ate a quiet breakfast in the galley before Katrin and Benjen departed for the stealthy shark. Kenward waved as they climbed down to the boat. Katrin half-heartedly returned his wave. The next two weeks passed slowly. The mood aboard both ships was somber and strained, despite making headway. The time spent in barren waters taxed their food supply, and they were down to minimal rations. Tired and overworked, they performed their tasks as best they could. Katrin checked on Chase regularly, and his condition continued to improve. Once he was no longer confined to his hammock, his recovery became more rapid. When we reach the Falcon Isles, you can finish healing and then return home, Katrin said as they stared out to sea. And leave you to have all the fun? I wouldn't wager on it, he said. She shook her head. We know this probably isn't going to end well. This may be your last chance to save yourself. I wouldn't blame you. There's much that needs to be done on the Godfist, and I wouldn't keep you from it, she persisted. Leave it be, Cat. I'm coming with you, and you'll like it. End of discussion, he said with a firm nod, and she let him win the battle. Nat will be staying in the Falcon Isles, she said, unsure what reaction to expect. How do you feel about that? Chase asked, giving her no indication as to how he felt about it. I wish him well, but I'm glad I won't be going to the Greatland alone she said, and he simply nodded, apparently unwilling to say any more. Strom and Osborne also insisted on continuing on to the Greatland and would not be dissuaded. Nad is doing the right thing, Benjen had said when she had spoken to him earlier that day. Staying behind was probably the harder path to choose, and I think he truly fears for you more than he does for himself. Katrin didn't know how to feel. Nat had his own circumstances and reality, but he had proven himself both brave and honorable, and she decided to believe he was making a sacrifice instead of seeing him as a deserter. She was trying to decide what she would do upon her arrival in the Greatland when the lookout called from the crow's nest. Land ho! These are not the populated isles, Bryn said. There are hundreds of islands that make up the chain, but only the larger ones are inhabited, and these are among the most remote. As they approached a small cluster of rocks that jutted from the sea, Katrin noticed several objects floating in the water. Kenward saw them as well, and he set a course that would take the eel dangerously close to the rocks. The floating objects were actually large pieces of lightwood, attached to something below the waves with coarse rope. Crab pots, Bryn said. The local fishermen used colorful markings to indicate ownership, he added with a wink, and Katrin realized this was the message from Kenward's mother. Her thoughts were confirmed when Kenward contemplated the markings for a few moments before declaring their plans. We'll remain here until dark and hide in the shadows. Hopefully, no one will spot us. Once night falls, we'll make our way to safe harbor and meet my mother's men he told his crew, and his words were conveyed to the stealthy shark. Both crews took advantage of the downtime, and most sought food and drink. Their supplies were low, but with land in sight, they worried less. Others sought their hammocks. 
Katrin took the opportunity to arrange a meeting with Nat. Bryn rowed her to the slippery eel, and she found Nat in his cabin. I've spoken with the others, and we'll all be continuing on to the Greatland. I'm sorry to leave you alone, she began, and he nodded silently. I have no specific tasks for you. You're free to do as you wish. If you find any way to help my cause, however, I expect you to act. Agreed? Agreed. I've been thinking about staying in the Falcon Isles for a while. Things on the Godfist will be what they will be whether I'm there or not. Perhaps I can learn more here. To be honest, I find the thought of living where no one knows my past quite appealing. I hope you find happiness. Farewell, Nat Derzinger. Thank you for all you've done and endured. May fate be kind to you, she said with a sad smile. Thank you, Katrin. You are kind and gracious. May the light of Istra and Vestra shine on you, he said formally and bowed deeply. Before we part, I have a gift for you. My father said there'd come a time when someone would have greater need of this than I, and I believe that time has finally come. My family has guarded this staff for ages untold. The knowledge of its origins has been lost to time, and I can only hope our efforts have not been in vain. May it support you when you need it most. He held out his staff to her, and she accepted it hesitantly. Thank you, Nat. I'll take good care of it, she said, not knowing what else to say. As she held the staff in her hands, she noticed for the first time that the metal heel bore a subtle engraving of a serpent head with empty sockets for eyes. It was disconcerting to look upon, as if it were yearning for something. I must say a few more farewells, if you'll excuse me. May we meet again some day, Nat said and she was glad they were able to part without ill feelings. Katrin thanked each crewman individually for risking his or her life to save her and her companions, then returned to the stealthy shark to visit with those who'd been her shipmates. Those who share such experiences are never forgotten. Even if the names fade with the years, the mental images remain indelible. When they raised anchor again, the skies were clear, and a nearly full moon shone among the stars. Katrin saw no comets and sighed. Disappointment filled her whenever she looked and did not find them. Oddly, they brought her comfort, and she missed the feeling of security they gave her. A part of her worried there would be no more comets, no more energy for her to revel in, but she pushed her fears aside. What would be, would be and worrying over it would do nothing but sour her stomach. The crews of both ships demonstrated their abilities as they navigated the many small islands, sailing generally north and west, and eventually a large landmass emerged from the night. Into a narrow channel they sailed with only lanterns to light the way, and they followed it to a small natural harbor. Katrin could see no sign of anyone else about until lanterns opened aboard several small boats that drifted along the shoreline. No one made a sound, and Katrin kept her mouth shut. 
She waited for some instructions from the slippery eel while she assisted Bryn and the crew in dropping anchor as silently as they could. Afterward, Benjen helped her strap Nat's staff to her back so she could carry it with both hands free. Kenward signaled with a lantern, and Bryn quietly ordered one of the small boats dropped. He guided Katrin and Benjen to the rail and told them to climb down. He sent some men to help Chase, and he followed them. While Chase struggled to climb down with one arm, Katrin sat in the boat, wondering what life would throw at her next. She was about to embark on an extended voyage to a massive, foreign land whose inhabitants considered her the enemy. As they approached the small gathering of boats, she wondered if her life would ever be normal again. Osborne sat in the boat with his knees pulled to his chest, wondering at how quickly his life had changed. What had always seemed permanent and unchangeable was gone in an instant, and now he wandered through a new and frightening world, one where childhood friends wielded devastating powers. Still unable to find calm within the chaos of his mind, he clung to the hope that Katrin would always be Katrin, deep down and would never become one of the monsters that haunted his dreams. That concludes this episode of Inherited Danger. Thank you for listening. For the latest news and new releases, be sure to check out patioracket.com.